Hello, welcome to episode 28 of Get Out of Rap. This episode features me chatting with Janine Lee. Met Janine through a mutual contact on LinkedIn uh, from the contact center world with a really interesting story and a very inspirational person. Uh, really enjoyed chatting with her. And we have been in touch over the last year, um, predominantly just around talking about coming on the podcast and having a chat. And she's been really patient. So for everyone else I've talked to as well, um, please do contact me again. Hang in there. We will make things happen. Now I can do it a lot easier with um, Zoom. So please enjoy the episode and happy to take any feedback or engagement afterwards. But here is Janine. So Janine, thank you very much for... um, coming on and your your patience we've talked about doing this uh, for a while from some mutual connections and you've got a a great track record of really interesting backstory so thank you very much for coming on oh thanks martin i knew, I knew we'd get to catch up at some point so thanks again for for inviting me onto your podcast thank you no worries so why don't we start with the first thing from um, when we sort of share background information um, that grabs the attention, was you had a very interesting route into into the world of kind of contact centres and that kind of thing, a, a kind of unlikely route. So the early part of your career was actually as a... As a chef. <laughs> yeah, so so not kind of connected with, the, with contact centres at all, I guess. Um, but yeah, I started out, I guess... Um, the, the preclusion story to that was probably wanting to get into hearing beauty. It was the late 80s. It was a kind of recession time. Um, and everyone said, you know, who's going to want to have the hair done or, or the nails done with, when there's no money about? So everyone needs to eat. And I took a route then into, into catering. Um, and I found I had a real passion for kind of cooking. And, and I love to cook at home. And, and I kind of took a, a number of jobs in, in the catering industry. And for about 12 years, actually, so leaving school, going to college and, and take me up to about the age of 28. Um, when I had a couple of injuries just through um, kind of heavy lifting, heavy lifting of pans and different things. And at that point, I thought I want to take a different route uh, career wise. Um, and probably through this podcast, Martin, you probably pick up that I like to talk. Yeah. Um, so I thought customer service, that would be the way to go for me. Uh, I'd love to get involved in kind of contact center and speaking to people and helping people. That's always been something that I like to do. I, I've always liked to help people, whether it be family, friends or, or people in work. Um, so a, a part-time position uh, at the time, RSA Insurance were recruiting at the time and they were known then as Rolson Alliance. Um, and they were recruiting for part-time evenings. They were just putting in evening shifts, uh, which I guess is the norm today. Yeah. But they were just putting in evening shifts. Um, and I applied and, and was successful in, in getting one of those shifts. Um, and again, at the time, thinking, you know, I'm up for doing full-time, but, but let me find my feet in, in doing this role. And about six weeks later, um, I got offered a full-time position um, as a customer advisor, um, and that was kind of um, home insurance, pet insurance, motor insurance. I really loved the kind of contact centre environment, um, being around people and, and kind of helping customers and, and seeing that vibe that goes on 
amongst people um, and seeing the challenges again that you know you can you can deal with as part of being part of a team I guess. A couple of things that come that really kind of struck me from that is uh, it's really nice to hear it positioned as wanting to help people so contact centres being a good industry for helping and we don't often we, we kind of forget that I think sometimes so I think that's lovely to to hear that and then I then it reminds me of uh, it'd be interesting to get your view on what RSA were like at the time around I can remember having teams and everyone was drawn from different backgrounds so yes you had a percentage of your team that had worked in the contact center down the road and they were doing the rounds but equally you had someone who it was his first job you we had retired lawyers we had a guy who just qualified as um, actually like a rocket scientist people and you coming as a chef and being in that service industry I just wonder your views on whether either then and not just RSA but do we do enough to accommodate that and draw from people's strengths or, or do we just because I'm thinking back to where when I started or some of those early positions it, it felt like we we tried to squash that individuality out of people to just get them to comply to the company and maybe we missed a trick back then yeah you know I think from experience I've been through a kind of a number of recruitment approaches um, for in various roles over the years and I think depending on the, the type of recruitment I always felt it, it became a bit of an impersonal thing mm. so a lot of recruitment we did was very much about pass this test mm. and actually if you were looking for um, you know people that are that is a shift say five till nine or four till eight or seven till eleven what is the type of demographic that you're looking to attract that might bring a bit of life experience and for me that was always the community that maybe mums and dads mm. that looked after their children in the day but mm. actually were wanting to get back into the workplace and we were missing completely missing that trick mm. because they may have been out of the workplace for a, for a long time and then being asked to complete a test that people would just say can't do tests mm. not great at them and I always felt like, and towards the latter part of my career in RSA, actually, we, we tried to reverse that approach, which was, you know, will, will these people fit in my team? Mm. Are they a great cultural fit? Have they got a sense of humour? Yeah. What do they bring from a life experience? Have they got the skills? Maybe not, but I can teach them. Yeah. So I think that there was a lot of that over the years where we brought people in. And actually, they might have been great on paper, but then didn't either last that long in the role or didn't perform well because we'd missed completely what we needed as a business versus what we needed in, in an individual in, in what they could bring and add value into, into the business with a little bit of longevity in that as well. And I guess you only get that from a conversation with someone, not, 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 from, not from a tick box test. Agree. Absolutely agree. I mean, I was coming from being a chef for 12 years. Yeah. Um, and you know back then there was a test but a lot of that was was an interview and it was about you know tell us how you can do on the phone we're going to do a role play and you know I'm always kind of is, is a role play the right thing does that give people or does that give you the perspective of someone in their real environment I think what we're seeing now where people are, are in their natural environment on zoom 
I know you mentioned it kind of a little while ago, you know, you're seeing people differently. So it helps you understand them, but actually it helps them and you see them in their natural place. And I think, I think you get more from people um, seeing people that way. So you, you then gone from part-time to full-time pick up the story then. What, what, where did you go from there? So I, I kind of moved into, into a full-time team and it was at that point, probably about six months into that full-time role. I then decided, actually, um, I want to do this as a career. Because I guess for me, customer service felt like a natural route because I like to be part of kind of being around people. And I thought this is a natural way for me to, to help people, I thought, in my view at the time. So once I got into that kind of place and environment, it was almost like I want to make a career of this now. So mm-hmm. I don't just want to be on the phones and... And actually, I want to change people's perspectives to get outside because what, and I still hear it now, people say, oh, did you just work in a contact centre? Yeah. And it's almost like, and, and even when I'm contracting now, you know, people talk about, you know, people think I haven't got much of a role because I'm just in a contact centre. Yeah. Well, if you flip that and take out the fact that what you do is work in an environment with people, with effective training that really help customers you know, especially working in insurance, you're helping customers to protect themselves. Mm. So all of a sudden, if you take out the word contact center, people then see it in a completely different light. So I think contact center, for whatever reason, has got a kind of a, a view that people just think it's a, it's a nothing type role. And actually yeah. I find it was massively important to, to an industry, you know, that I was in, um, that we ran the place in which we worked really well. We had great people who delivered great service to customers um, and that completely changed my perspective on it then. Um, but I definitely wanted to then pursue that as a career. Um, so I started kind of, you know, wanting to get involved in different things. So things would come up and I'd either ask to be get, to get involved or I'd kind of say, please, can I get involved? You know, I want to um, help. I want to support. I want to make a difference and, and can I get more exposure to certain things because I want to get on in, in a career. Um, and I started to take on different roles then. Um, and then another opportunity came up where um, we were starting to set up a business insurance. Um, and I moved in um, into that role as an advisor and got, just really got stuck in, wanted to get involved in loads of things around setting up a business. Um, and that's where I kind of got my first leadership position. So the first leadership position come up um, and about 18 months into that, there was a, a decision to switch the business to different locations. So I was in a position where I was being made redundant for kind of the first time in my RSA career. There was a, a decision that I kind of had to make then. Um, and the business I'd come from, which was the personal lines insurance, there was opportunities back um, working evenings again. And it was about put, putting leadership roles back in to drive a longer opening hours um, on, on kind of a shift type basis, but on a shorter kind of set of hours to start off. And I just thought this is a real opportunity kind of to get in and, and not only learn more, but work amongst a wider group of people who are in leadership positions and have been for a while um, and, and work within that larger group to start to progress my career a little bit further. What were those, what was that kind of... Um the first step like from going from 
an advisor to then go into the business insurance section that, and that first leadership role how did you how did you adapt or what did you what would you share from that experience so I guess firstly I found it a, a little bit tough at the start because I guess you, you you're starting to take that step up from from your peers of of working kind of collaborative collaboratively with with that peer group to almost kind of being more directional um with that group and I think for me it was very much about making sure that you had engagement with those people they understood your role they understood you had a role to do and, and within that there might be tough decisions to make but as long as you can bring people on that journey and i'm not saying i always got it right martin you know all of the time mm. i made loads of mistakes but i learned from those mistakes for, for for every role that i then went to um and i think you know for making mistakes um gives you your biggest learns you know i still make loads of mistakes today but I always learn and I never make that same mistake again. But I think it was about bringing people on that journey, learning from the people around you, whether that was learning from their mistakes or learning from what their strengths were and trying to draw on um, people that you had access to. So there was, because that role was being set up as a business, there was lots of project people around. And I think that was my first probably pull into at some point wanting to get into change and transformation that was my kind of first exposure to setting up a business being exposed to what happens and how you drive that with the right governance um, and learning from that as you kind of go but it was definitely about bringing people along the journey and, uh, and, and effective communication with that as you went and that kind of the concept of um, mistakes is an interesting one isn't it because I I think there's so much to be said for having, if you've got access to the right uh, support network where you can openly talk about your mistakes, because I don't know if you felt this, as a first time leader, you're quite brittle. I think you feel like you have to be quite proud and it's admitting that you've erred or made a mistake isn't, doesn't come naturally, I don't think. Totally agree. And I think from someone who's, always lacked a lot of confidence um, and, and even today still working on a lot of that um, and having a massive fear of failure. For me, you know, trying to acknowledge mistakes was, was often met from me with trying to justify why I'd done things. And mm. I think what I've learned over the years is it's okay to admit that you got it wrong because that's where your biggest learning comes from. And I've learned more from that in the last few years than I ever did previously. And it's almost if I'd have known now or known then what I know now, I'd have probably done things differently. I'd have been mm. more open. Mm. I'd have been um, more open to say, I've got it wrong very early. You know, this is the, the impact of what I've done. Um, who can help and support for me to kind of recover the position? Um, and there was never anything that made, you know, a huge detriment to anything. But to me, it was huge. Yeah. Um, and sometimes when you can speak to people and be exposed to that support, and there was always that support around, it was more the issue was with me um, having that confidence enough to kind of openly say, I've got it wrong. Yeah. And I think that's really important that people know that, it, that they can do that. And, and as long as they're met with the right support, it will really take them forward and move them forward in, in either the role they're in or within a career step. And I think you're, you're dead, right? I think one of the things that people, and it took me a while to realize, is people are, their default setting is supportive. 
and they're there waiting to support you but it's kind of uh, if you're passive they're not going to come to you so uh, in uh, being in operations of course you had hr l and d there were people there that you could go to and say i need some help yeah with my team or i've made this mistake and they were more than willing to help and the other thing i found with doing the podcast actually is people are so generous with their time like you are now from outside of your own company or your own network i think if you just utilize the tools that are out there whether it's linkedin or or something like that people are very open and happy to to help where there's yeah. no you know there's no kind of benefit but i think as a new leader you're less inclined to kind of put your hand up and say yeah i could do with some help here yeah no absolutely agree and what's really interesting is again coming from that lack of confidence for people that are looking to take career steps or looking to to do better in their current role because i think there's a demographic isn't there of you know it's it's acceptable for people to be recruited and for them to want to stay in a company for whatever many years doing the same role because that's what they want mm. not everyone wants to move on yeah. not everyone wants to progress and i think what's interesting for me is if i look back for someone that lacked confidence and never really let anything hold me back so even going through times where you know redundancy was on the table or having this fear of failure of not wanting to ask I never allowed the confidence to or the situation to control me so you know if there was a time that that I had this fear or we were being made redundant or there was a challenge it was always how do I take control of the situation to allow me to move on without it controlling me and really then you know you're feeling defeated by something that um you could have easily have asked for help on and support and and like you're saying use those people around you to really help um progress and i think i've seen that definitely on linkedin you know seeing how you and i connected from from a mutual connection you just don't know who's out there and i think you know I mentioned earlier, I'm on a course now at the moment that is massively valuable. And the biggest thing I've learned from this is in my career, I've always thought a lot of what do I want to do and how do I do it? Well, actually, I don't know how to do it. So I'll just forget about that. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll just forget. And I know I've had a lot of dreams and a lot of goals in the past that I've been defeated by the fact I've thought I can't do them because I don't know how. My biggest learn is forget the how. Mm -hmm. Focus on what is it you want to do? because you'll work the how out later um, because you'll start to connect. Things will start to come to you if you're really clear on your goals and where you want to get to. And that might just be, I want to progress in a career. I want to move on and, and get better results in the current team I'm in. Um, or I just want to improve a certain kind of KPI. Mm. I think there's, there's a big thing there that how people do things when they're not asking for support stops people doing things. I love that because to be honest I think that's thing that's the kind of the old adage I would like to think I apply that in my in my day job because I'll often have the team asking me about how we're going to or how we're going to achieve something and I'm saying I don't know you know I, I don't know but we need to do something we need to start here's the goal let's figure out how we how we get there so yeah. I love that message not letting the how actually start you from taking action right a hundred percent because i've found it's definitely stopped me in my tracks because you just i think people see something as completely unachievable 
And it's thinking about your thoughts and feelings and actions, isn't it? That drive you then to deliver the result rather than this is the result. How do you do it in reverse? And that that has kind of hit home to me this year around how you change perspective and actually how I'm coaching my own daughter now who has probably got a similar... I mean, in fact, I've probably given her the fear of being in an, ex, in an exam situation and being up against time pressure and thinking, I can't, I just can't do it. Mm. Trying to coach her to think, forget about how you're going to do it. Think about what it is that you are trying to achieve and that's affecting you to give you this thought of, you know, I can't do it because I'm under time pressure. How do we change tact to mm. think differently? Mm. Um, and again, it's almost like if I'd have known this then, this would have been a game changer for me. Yeah. Um, back, you know, when I was doing kind of those roles within within the contact centres when I was working there. So after to go back to that then, so after the um, you got to the you go back to evening and in a leadership position there. Then where did your how, how did your career progress from there? So from there, um, the evening shifts were kind of there was less demand later on in the evening, um, and in terms of kind of cost challenges and opening hours being kind of quite elongated those shifts started to shorten so I found I was doing kind of more more in the daytime to the point where I then got involved in kind of resource planning and new technology coming into the business and again that's where I found that I really liked kind of the analysis side of things I, I've always been someone that's like to get involved in numbers and kind of putting things together and analyzing to find results and do some root cause analysis on stuff um, whether that to be drive coaching or change or process improvements, I've always found that was what I really liked to do. Mm. So I got involved um, in resource planning and we kind of operated across um, multi-sites uh, in terms of that, that setup. Um, and that kind of, I was in that, that role for probably a couple of years, um, learned a lot about the, the capacity planning and forecasting side of things that have actually stayed with me till today and I remember being in that role and thinking why am I in this role how did I get here and I remember saying to myself there's a reason and a purpose of why I've done this and actually now I'm contracting many years later and um, I always get drawn into how do we how do we capacity plan in a business how do we forecast and make sure we've got the right resources in the right places at the right times and um, so I always go back and think that was the reason. That was the reason I kind of I fell into that role. Um, and sometimes it's not always about falling into roles. I think mm. you, you kind of navigate your, your way and your career and naturally you get into roles for a reason. And I definitely believe that's one of the reasons I, I did the resourcing and forecasting roles at that time to kind of help me in, in the roles that I'm doing today. You must see the application of those principles now more so than ever when it comes to how companies are looking at their resources given that their resources are now scattered in at home a hundred percent and again that, that's i'm still in contact with, with quite a lot of clients that i've done work for in the past and it's really interesting because hearing their story a couple of years ago and, and even just kind of six or twelve months ago the fact that they have big corporate offices um around the country and how they need people to be in nine five in the office monday to friday um, and i always used to question that why do you need people if it's not a telephony based role and actually even if it is why do you need them on site because for me it's always been about recruiting the right people 
that you can trust. So if you trust people that you're going to recruit, that you're bringing into, the, into the, your team because you know they're the right fit for you, even if you're going to train them technically, um, why would you then not trust them to work regardless of where they're located? Yeah. If I'm yeah. going to manage people who, who are based in another site, does it matter whether they're based in another site or they're based in another place, but they're at home? Mm. I, I, I don't see the difference. But what I've seen definitely in the last kind of two or three months is a real change in, in, that, in that kind of view. And I think it's an inherent thing with an old school kind of mentality of that's what you have to do to run an effective business. And the fact people are saying, actually, we can reduce costs in a different way Mm. because our people are delivering more than we're, we're even expecting them to do now in their own environment. And there's a little bit of flexibility because we can adapt their day around them as well. People are more engaged. Mm. And I think as long as people get the you know communication right, they get the frequency of kind of contact and communication and you use Zoom and you know, different types of technologies in the right way, I think it can work really well. And I think the, the, the counterbalance of that is, you know, I know um, being a contractor and working for, for myself, sometimes is it just about you have to deliver um, the service that you're providing a client. Um, you are being, you're delivering against milestones. So if that means you have to work long days to get it delivered in the timescale you've signed up to, then, then that's what you have to do. Yeah. But I think there's a flip side of that, that if you're, and um, working on on a, on a kind of a standard eight hour shift you know i know feedback from my friends that that work in offices but are working at home in the moment at the moment they tend to find that they're putting dinner on and then going back online then they'll eat dinner and go back online so they're finding that they're working much longer hours and they're, they're finding they're getting kind of tired as well so i think there's very much a balance of trust your people to work from home because they're the people you've recruited to do a great job for, for, for customers, but equally give them the autonomy that it doesn't matter where they work from, but give the balance that they're, they're not working a, mm. a massively long shift that mm. counteracts against mental health and, and all of those. I think it's really important that people see that as well. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, we've, you know, we've had challenges where some, the minority, but team leaders have said, they miss the comfort of seeing their team and being in the same physical space as them. And my, you know, my challenge to that is to want to explore what that comfort is. What, what, what is it? What, what is there in, in that work in the previous before COVID that you can't get now through remotely because there's there's something in that if, if it's about human connection I, I understand it but it it's it's in there exploring how the job is affected that I think there's some really interesting yeah um I don't know what the answer is but <laughs> yeah and I think you're right Martin. I think the human connection for me um again I always like to be around people so I have felt it because sometimes I, you know, I would go into a client's office because I'd need to speak to people. And rather than do that via phone, I'd like to stand up in a room and, and, and get people interacting and draw mm. on, you know, flip charts and whiteboards. Yeah. And, and then I've got all of my collateral that I can take away and, and develop a plan on. Um, so I think it is very much that. But I think you're right. What, what else is it that 
is kind of tangible that that you can't do via via a remote option i think we're all kind of we're all getting to that point where we know that it's not going to just revert back to what it was like before that there's going to be a new a new normal a hybrid of of some sort it's actually i think it's quite exciting to think where it's going to go i do yeah no i very much do and i think all of a sudden you kind of think it's taken a pandemic to get kind of businesses to look at things differently but actually sometimes that's okay because i think you know businesses are so busy Mm. that it does have to take a huge shift in something to get people to refocus and think right what do we do that's different that can still keep our business kind of momentum still deliver us great results still keep our people engaged and our customers happy um but we're doing it differently did you do anything else as well um so you you operationally you ran teams and then you um doing some leadership roles in resourcing as well what did you do did you touch upon any other sort of disciplines within the contact center world so i i, I kind of moved between a direct to consumer role in kind of personal insurance kind of leading functions and then i moved across into um what was the broker business which was business to business um kind of environment and, and i think although it's more of a communicative discipline i found that very different communicating although both customers communicating in a way that there was a bigger demand from from a business customer because you might be dealing with a client who has got you know millions of pounds worth of business with you they want something um that is outside of your normal kind of governance and, and underwriting rules but because you know they're they're the MD of the business. It's about how do you need to look at something different, still within the in the rules of governance in a business, but equally underwriting it in a way that is involving different skill sets. So that that was a very much a big eye opener for me, um, because within the personal side of things, a lot of it was system driven. Um, so there was lots of rules built into the system. In the broker side, there was system rules, but a lot of it was manual as well. You had to think outside the box. You had to think about actually if this was a a direct to consumer propositional relationship and um, would it do anything different because we're now dealing with a a broker um who's got a lot of value with the business as well and part of that was developing um a service proposition which was looking very differently at if you've got you know a, a group of a, gr- a group of clients in this business um that you know might have a small amount of business with you versus the the high-end clients who've got millions and millions of pounds with the business should there be a different service offering that you would give to the customers um and actually would you charge them for it if they wanted a, a, an enhanced level of service would you charge different options if there was a tiered level of service and the the, the proposition um we produce is very much focused on almost you know if you if you were in this kind of group of clients then um you'd get you know answered within the usual slas within a contact center environment but you might not um have access to a direct decision maker it might need an escalation point and, and it was tiered up that way you know to the high end which was you've got a direct dial into someone um, they had an, an enhanced level of underwriting experience. They could underwrite there and then for a, for a series of products. So it was kind of tiered in that way. Um, and that was really interesting to get 
um, in, the insight from that the, those customers mm. in, in that business environment to hear, actually, I think I kind of know what you want in a proposition. And some of that was very different to what they did want. And that was very much answer my call, get me a decision maker. And that was, it was as simple as that. So wrapping some enhanced service proposition around that as well, gave them more than they were expecting. And I think as long as you can live up to that proposition and you can make sure, again, I was thinking the resourcing element, your resources yeah. to that proposition. Um, people, you know, those clients and people really, um, really like that approach. And I think as, once we communicated everything in the right way, you know, there was worth moving from different sites at that time and it was, it was difficult decisions being made as well. Communication was key. Uh, building relationships with the clients and their staff um, was key because you got to know those people and their, their requirements um, and what their kind of ask were, were going to be on quite a regular basis. And I think once you start to build that knowledge of what their needs are, um, we built a really good relationship. With, with, with that uh, particular business and then from from doing that where did your where did you go to next at what point were, were you thinking about doing your own thing at this point or have you always been thinking about that or so probably the last um maybe 10 years i've started to think about so i was i was diagnosed as a C, as celiac so everything i have has to be you know strictly free it's a lifelong condition it can't be medicated so you know it's really strict it's an it's an autoimmune condition with me celiac disease um so at that point i started to think i'd like to go back to the food industry at some mm. point mm. so the view was um i'd like to open a gluten-free cafe that was kind of the dream but it was parked because I kept focusing on how am I going to do it? I'm not going to be able to do it. I kept focusing on that how again. So I guess, you know, I kept thinking about, you know, how do I, how do I get that goal? How do I achieve that goal? And how would I run my own business? And actually, would you just have a business that is gluten-free? Um, and at that time, um, pop, the popularity of gluten-free products was becoming more prevalent because everyone was thinking, you know, this is a really good diet to follow. Um, and it was, you know, being exposed to kind of a business that you could potentially grow because you're not just pigeonholing yourself into a group of people that are just operating with an autoimmune disease. There's a population out there mm -hmm. now that are actually following this diet. So I was starting to think about, you know, is there an opportunity for me to get to the Prince's Trust and get a loan and start to do it that way? Um, and then I got the opportunity to move into a change role. And, and I've seen that as a real opportunity to think, right, this is going to help me understand how you transform businesses, how you re-engineer and start businesses. Is this an opportunity to help me plan my own business further along the line? So I kind of took that opportunity with both hands at that point because I loved to see how things changed. I was exposed to quite a lot of people who were really good program and project managers in RSA at the time um, and I utilized them to help to coach me I kind of reached out to them on a regular basis to understand their varied view because everyone has a different view of how you manage a project they use different ways different means um, so I wanted to get a really varied view of how effective um, is it to manage a project in the right way and I've always been one um, that every day is for learning doesn't matter how old you get 
every day is for learning practice makes makes progress because for me practice makes perfect gets you to a point where you can become complacent but actually when you practice to make progress it keeps you keeps momentum to keep you learning and that's always been the way i've looked at things and and especially you know having a family as well and trying to get your children to look at it that way um it, it keeps them kind of fresh and, and want more in terms of knowledge. So I've always been one for reading, doing courses and wanting to learn more. So we did a couple of uh, kind of courses uh, within RSA and outside just to understand, you know, how you manage projects, how, what, what would a company look for if, if they were um, wanted to bring someone in to, to kind of manage projects. So I learned a lot through that role um, in terms of change. And then um, I probably went through around seven reviews in my 16 years of RSA. And at that point, um, I knew probably that the role, the last role I was going to be in, probably was going to be my last in RSA. And that was really then to start getting me to think, what is the next steps? Um, Based on the the business model was changing, all of the the milestones I was asked to deliver were all being delivered within, within a time frame. Um, is there going to be a role for me at a certain point in time? So I started to think back about the cafe option. My husband had started uh, a property development business with one of his friends in 2010, um, the same year that we'd had our daughter. So it was kind of like, I'm now operating as a one-parent family because he's working kind of 18-hour mm. days. So he was working full-time and running this property business as well. Um, and we kind of discussed, you know, if I went into contracting where you know six years ago there was there was a demand probably less demand than there was 10 years ago but there was a demand for skills that I'd kind of built up over those years and what I found was that clients were not just specifically looking for say a PM that could deliver a project they were looking for maybe a hybrid approach of you know if you're going to project manage or be an analyst in our business how can you help us with other skills as well? Um, and that for me was where I felt I could really help. And that's, I guess that's aided me in other roles. So I've been pulled into different projects and programs based on that skill set that I've built over those years. So going back to 20, 2015, I guess, um, my husband decided he was going to leave his job after 30 year, 30, about 33 years. And just walk away because he wanted to commit full time. Mm. So he decided kind of stick with his job for, for the time being. I was then about to leave RSA. I got an opportunity to contract that came from my network of kind of ex-colleagues and friends. Um, and I was given my, um, my first contract with one of the big banks. So my husband kind of was looking at, you know, if you get an extension on this six months, then I'm going to look to leave. So I did get an extension to that into that program and he left his job as well and went full time. So all of a sudden we're, we're, we're both full time kind of self-employed. You've almost knocked off that um, kind of luxury of having, you know, okay, I've still got a pension that, mm. you know, that's frozen with RSA, but all of a sudden you haven't got the holiday pay, you haven't yeah. got all of this stuff that supports, so you're kind of out on your own. Um, and again, for someone that, that did lack confidence. It was almost how do I keep building knowledge and skills to to create a successful business as a contractor, um, and I and I've done that successfully for six years, and I've done that through it. I believe, you know, the the constant learning, 
the constant opportunities that maybe you didn't think were right at the time. But I got to a place where I thought about probably about two years ago, where I thought, what's the next steps? Where's the, where are we going in the world that will help me? One, continue to learn, but get me into a place that will probably take me right out of my comfort zone. Um, so uh, so the, the, for me, it was getting into payments, into an environment with payments, and then, you know, getting into um, digital. So I didn't have a lot of experience with digital, and I didn't have any experience in payments. And an opportunity came up that was in London. So for someone that is a typical Cancerian, I'm a home bird, I like my yeah. home comforts. Um, I certainly didn't do tubes. I didn't understand a tube map at all. <laughs> I thought, how the hell am I going to navigate my way around London to even get to an office for a client? Um, because this then was the, um, I guess, the first step from being around big corporates into a fintech environment. So I thought this really fulfills my learning opportunity because I'm going to be in fintech, it's digital and it's payments. So I'm completely exposed. I don't know a lot about this. How do, I, how do I get the knowledge? And it was quite interesting because two weeks in, I actually got my case and was heading back to Euston Station. and was about to phone the program manager I was working for to say, I can't do this. I don't know anything about it. And I'm really struggling. And I, I really had to take a step back and think, right, what have I been trying to teach myself all these years in a career mm. that actually, if I look back, has been really successful. Mm. Um, and I've always looked back and thought, well, I just did that. Well, actually, yeah. I did that well. And I always got really great feedback. Um, you know, I need to stop. I need to stop. And I need to think about, stop thinking about what you can't do and think about what's in your control and who can help you learn. And that was a massive turning point for me. Um, even to the point where I just got one of the colleagues in London who thought it was quite funny at the time to sit down and ask them, teach me how, how the London Underground works. Tell yeah. me what all these colours mean. <laughs> Tell me how I can navigate in a really easy way. So I'm pleased to say I kind of, I, I did navigate my way and I found it really easy after a couple of months to get on the tubes. But that was a real blocker for me to mm -hmm. think, I can't go to London because I don't mm -hmm. know how to navigate a tube. And my friends laugh now and think it's really funny. But for me, that was a real confidence issue that if I can't do the tube, how am I going to even get to do anything for a client? Um, so, so that, that for me, there was probably one of the biggest opportunities that I've taken. I've been in some really good, big programs, um, but that one for me specifically wasn't always drawing on my previous experience, although latterly it did. Um, it, it was really pulling on different skills that I needed to find. And I used to overnight, I was, I was living in London three days a week and overnight I used to do courses. Because for me, I thought, while, while I'm a typical home bed, I'm away, this will keep me occupied of an evening. Yeah. So once I've spoken to the family, um, I can keep learning and understanding, you know, the big um, business that is payments, um, but also fintech and the challenges that fintechs may, may, may take um, or may have as they're starting to build their business. Um, and, you know, for me, it was pressure because the fintechs were making sure or were trying to make sure they had the right skills. And I was someone that I felt could add value, but actually wasn't skilled in payment. So how could mm. I quickly learn? Otherwise, you, you are exposed to a business that is trying to break the market. Um, 
and actually disrupt it in a way that they're bringing something back that's not new, but they're bringing a different product that's going to differentiate them and, and really disrupt what is payments today. So there was a lot of pressure at the time, but I thought rather than, um, you know, take the easy way out and run, it was about think who can help, how can they help, and how can you get the right skills? And a lot of that was through learning and learning through some mistakes as well. I just love this. I love the concept of what you're talking about there is that you've, you really exhibit the growth mindset and that the having a growth mindset and being inquisitive all the time and wanting to learn has actually helped you overcome um, like your self-confidence challenges to the point where you're really successful and you're successful in areas that, you know, you didn't know anything about. And that's kind of, you know, that cliche about comfort zone and development. But to do that requires work, requires yeah. wanting to learn, being open-minded. So I, I love that. I mean, if you, if you had to kind of encapsulate and summarize your, the lessons learned, um, we were sharing beforehand, weren't we, around a lot of the demographics of people that listen to the podcast are maybe quite early on in their management careers if you were to that kind of growth mindset is obviously one what other key pointers would you kind of want to share around how you've got to where you are now um, lessons learned anything like that really so I guess for me I think that as you've just been saying that Martin a couple of things jump out for me I think never stop learning never stop learning I think the the biggest learn for me I guess is the fact I've always asked why. So mm. even, you know, going through these confidence things, um, I, I never give up. And I think I have a really strong mindset, continue to learn. You'll get knockbacks along the way. I've had loads of knockbacks along the way where, you know, things didn't work out or you got things wrong or you applied for, you know, internal roles. I always believed that there was a reason that I didn't get those roles at the time. And, and actually, as the years went on, that revealed itself as to why I didn't get those roles. And I look back and think, actually, I wasn't ready at the time. I wasn't right at the time. And I've navigated my way through various leadership roles. You know, I think people think that their journey has to go in an upward way. I yeah. took so many roles at the same level mm. because I wanted to learn. And I think that they're probably able to say three things. It, was, it would be the never stop learning keep asking why um, and, and don't be disheartened by any knockbacks that you get along the way mm. because, you know, if you've got a clear goal, um, you'll realise those goals um, with the right mindset and realise why certain roles weren't for you um, as you go through your career. I love that because it's the concept that progression isn't linear. It doesn't have to be linear, does it? It doesn't have to mean yeah. going up some org chart. Progression can just be... Learn, acquiring new skills trying a new discipline and where better to do that than within the environment that um that we're from um so i i love that mate and just sort of finally what what do you find yourself doing now what are you doing now what's the what's the kind of current projects you're working on now so i'm still i'm still contracting so i'm working on a big migration program at the moment um for a pension company so still within that, but it's really interesting that you ask because as I'm kind of going into big numbers next year, so hitting the big 5-0 next year and thinking, actually, 
um, is the is the cafe dream still a still a still a, a dream? Is it still mm. a goal? Is it something I still want to pursue? Um, do I want to still be contracting in five years' time? And what's really interesting for me is, and I think we mentioned it kind of at the top of the call, being involved in with people is always something that I've loved. Mm. And when I started to contract, I used to think, did I just come out of leadership roles because I, I, I lost the passion for it? Or, or what was it? And actually, it wasn't that. It was around the fact that when I first started to contract, I didn't feel like I was around people. Mm. So once I understood that, it was about working cl- more closely with people and, and finding that right balance. But what's happened now with this pandemic is I've, I've kind of been exposed to a couple of kind of charity um, kind of scenarios and, and people who have gone through real challenges with mental health or from underprivileged backgrounds. And all of a sudden with the coaching that I'm doing now, I'm kind of being more drawn to coaching children yeah. and, and really moving into coaching children to set them up for the work working environment coaching children rightly or wrongly education i feel i I was parent governor at my daughter phase school for for about six or seven years the the teachers are doing an amazing job but what i find is they're very driven because they're they're forced to be driven that way by numbers and actually children are not a one size fits all and what i've learned you know over a 30-year career from catering into the contact centers and doing varying different roles and through contracting and doing lots of different courses is there's so much opportunity that I think we're missing with our kids today to expose them to, especially with everything around social media as well, to expose them to um, positioning around what they really want, what they think they can't achieve and drawing on what they can and bringing them away from they can't, they won't, you know, if they're from an under, underprivileged background, it doesn't mean they can't achieve. Mm. So, these children have so much potential. I don't think it's being tapped into. So um, the next bit for me is definitely putting put more courses in to, to learn more about how I can approach that with children. Um, and using, I guess, my contacts that I've had in the past in the schools, in, even in the gym that I go to, um, the guy I work uh, that trains me, he's doing a lot of fitness training with with kids um, from various backgrounds. You know, looking at what what are the opportunities, and I'm not even thinking how I'm going to do it. I'm thinking this potentially is what I want to do next, um, and and I want to pursue that for sure. I couldn't agree more about um, how how children are taught and things like that. I think it's a fascinating um, subject. I I kind of you're actually it's. It's very inspiring listening to you um, talk. I I wish you all the best. I hopefully we you can come back on and give, give an update as to to where you are and what you're what you're going to be doing. I have no doubt you'll you'll be a success at um, whatever you do. And um, if people are listening and they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Either LinkedIn or I think my email address is also on LinkedIn. So more than happy for people to contact if. You know, they want to hear more about that story, Martin. If they're setting out on a career, more than happy uh, for people to get in contact via LinkedIn and connect or via email. Um, you know, I'd love to help if I can, even if you just help one person mm. achieve something. You know, I'd love to do that. And, and you know, thank you for inviting me on. It, you know, uh, it's been brilliant. I've really, really enjoyed it. Me too. It's been great. Janine, thanks very much. Brilliant. Thanks, Martin. We'll catch up soon. Bye.
Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that. Loads more episodes uh, coming up. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and thanks for listening. Yay!